Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Work Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. Look forward to your being with us. today's episode, I got a chance to sit down with Dr. Annie Woodley-Brown. Dr. Brown is an associate professor who's retired from the Howard University School of Social Work. Uh, she uh, served there in 1993 until about 2014, I believe. Uh, she is an expert in child welfare issues and is a, an author of a book that she co-authored with Dr. Ruby Gordine, called Social Action Advocacy and Agents of Change. Fascinating interview. Let's have a listen. Well, thank you, Annie, for being able to speak with me. Well, thank you very much for asking. So, um, can you tell me a bit about yourself? I'm interested in, in who you are and where you got to and how you got here. Hmm. <laughs> After 77 years, that's a long story. Um, I was born in Pineville, Louisiana, across the river from Alexandria, Louisiana, where I grew up. And I like to think, when I was born, uh, I was born on Hunter Street in Pineville, across the street from the Methodist Church, around the corner from the Baptist Church, and a block and a half from another Baptist Church. And I think that's important. Because the church and my family really kind of shaped my life. I used to think in terms of a tripod. The church, the family, and the school. That was the tripod that um, provided the foundation for my life. And, and as a matter of fact, it still hangs true today. So you must have some meaningful experiences. I did. Um, as I said, the church was very important. So from the time I was a really young child, I was the one that was learning poems and doing the welcome address and, and, and doing those kinds of things that inspire confidence and give, and give you a sense of yourself. And then I grew up in a large family on both my mother's side and, and my father's side. And family was very close. Um, I, I I was thinking back uh, once, and I'm I'm thinking that we learned very early on about differences in, in folk. And I remember that my mother had a brother that was um, developmentally delayed, and he couldn't. Uh, he was kept at home until he was probably a late teenager, and then he was committed to an institution. But on Sunday afternoons. Once a month, when I was as young as maybe three or four, and I remember this, my mother used to dress us up, and we would go to that home to visit my Uncle Ed. And so my mother was always looking for stuff to carry to Uncle Ed, you know, clothes, because people would steal his clothes, and they were constantly taking clothes. And I remember I would save my nickel. 
So I would have a nickel to give to Uncle Ed. And I, I think that kind of early experience just kind of make you think that you have to think outside of yourself and think about uh, about others. And, and it happened not from somebody necessarily saying something, but because of the way people live their lives. And so those were important experiences. Um, we never went on vacations, but we attended during the summer vacation Bible school. And those were wonderful experiences. And I remember once that uh, it wasn't my church. I would go to, around to different churches. Uh, one of the my vacation Bible school teachers had um, uh, had me on the program, and and then she she was uh, a member of the National Baptist Association or that kind of thing. And there was a big convention in Shreveport, and she talked to my mother and asked my mother if I could come because she wanted me to give the same speech I had given on the Vacation Bible School program at Truthland Baptist Church. She wanted me to do that for the National Baptist Association. So I must have been speaking. Uh, it must have been about 3,000 people. How old were you at that time? I was about 10. 10, and you spoke in front of 3,000 yes, people? Yes, I did. Wow. And what... Uh, what did you have to say, if you can remember any of it? It was something about uh, the parable of the fig tree. You know, that's all, I, I can't remember the specifics, but it was something about um, uh, that parable of the fig tree, because that had been one of the lessons we had, or something like that. My mother, I think, if she had been in another age, <laughs> maybe another color, might have been an actress. She loved public speaking. So from the time I was in second grade, I had a poem that I had to say. Um, it was, Young Melissa Sleeps Her Room. And so when, when my mother found out I had this poem, she would coach me. And so it was, Young Melissa Sleeps Her Room. I bow and I would do all of the gestures. And so apparently I did a good job. And at home, people, if you were, if you spoke well and you did a poem well, would send you around to other classrooms. So I got sent around to other classrooms. Uh, I was about seven then. So that was just the beginning because my mother only went to seventh grade. But I think she remembered everything she learned because she, she loved school and she particularly loved uh, poems. And so very early on, I knew the Song of Life. I knew Easter poems. I had welcome addresses that she had said when she was a child. And it was like they were passed on from generation through me. She had no idea where we, we would go. I mean, I think she was as astounded as anybody when we ended up, you know, like graduating from college and she would come to our graduations. That, that wasn't in her mind, I don't think, when she was doing that, because I don't think she uh, realized that could happen, because they didn't have the money to send us to college. And how many of the, of your siblings are there? No, well, there are eight. There are nine of us. I have six brothers and two sisters. Okay. And have all of them gone to college? All of them have gone to college. Two didn't graduate. Um... But one, who's in her 60s, is back here now. 
but she went to a vocational school and got a degree in uh, nursing, a nursing assistant. And that's when she started out, when she was a really smart person. She ended up being able to do procedures and that kind of thing. But what she's doing now, she has an office. She works in the VA hospital. And she does training. So, um, you stay real busy, even uh, now that you're retired. What makes you happy? Mm, what makes me happy is really seeing other people happy. Um, I have nieces and nephews. We don't have any children, but I have nieces and nephews. And I like to see them happy and, and doing well, as well as other people. I really like to see people um doing well. And and, and my um my nephews and nieces have done really well for themselves. My brothers and sisters have. I, I don't think my mother could have wished for more. And you were the eldest, correct? Yes. Okay. I am. <laughs> so uh what role do you think you've had in terms of helping your siblings and those sort of folks? Well, according to them, I, I made a difference. Okay. You know, this is interesting. Uh, during the summer, when we were out of school, I used to teach school. Uh, they didn't necessarily like it, but my mother supported me. So they couldn't just spend the whole morning out running around and, and doing stuff. We came in. They came in, and I would uh, teach them. So when they went to school, they knew how to write their names, they knew how to count. They, they knew their ABCs, and, and they knew how to write. And, that's, and I used to tell them stories, because I used to love to read and tell stories. So we would tell stories. We would uh, write plays. We would act and have their part. And, um, and so for the most part, they didn't give me a hard time, but they acquiesced. But they do say, they said, you know, we really didn't want to come in. But, but I had the authority of my mother for that. And uh, and it wouldn't take all day. It was just like the morning. I would do the lessons, and they had a notebook, and everybody. And so my mother always thought I would be a teacher. So you became a college professor. I became a college professor. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Uh, so let me uh, sort of uh, pivot a little bit to ask you a few other questions. Uh, you grew up in uh, Louisiana. Obviously, you saw a lot as it relates to... Uh, civil rights and some levels probably of oppression and other things. What civil rights or human rights issues uh, do you embrace now is most important? Well, now is then voting. Now, as far as I can remember, I knew my father voted. And then it was much, much later when I realized my mother voted. And, and they were going to vote very early in the morning, and we knew voting was important just because they said it was important. My mother used to, since because there were a lot of us, people used to ask them to give them one of us. You know, now, that's not, um, you know, people say, what? But that wasn't unusual then. If there were a large family, people would want to step up to help. And so they figured, you know, they would say, oh, if you let me have one of them, I'll send them to school. I'll do that. And my mother used to always say, 
No, I, we can't give you one. Each one is a blessing. And so that's what we heard. And so we thought, so you know, long before uh, Jesse Jackson um, had people reciting, we, you know, I am somebody, we really felt we were somebody. And based on all of that, is there a role you felt that you were most proud of? In that environment, I took pride in blazing the path for my sisters and brothers. My goal was to help us have a vision, you know, that we weren't going to always be where we were. Some, and don't have, I read a lot, so I knew, you know, that there were other things, other places, <laughs> and I intended to be there. Right. And, and that they were coming also. They were going to come with you. They were coming. So we used to sit around. We we didn't do a lot of um, going out, and so we used to spend a lot. We had a table in our dining room. We used to sit around and just talk about our dreams, who was going to do what, who was going to be responsible for what. It, it was amazing. My dad had um, not been able to buy a set of encyclopedias, but he bought this big dictionary. And it was a dictionary that had um, bio- short biographies, atlases, professions, and uh, and sign language. And so we used to that book had almost the same uh, import that the Bible had. And so we would read about professions. And so right now, four of my brothers are engineers. We didn't have engineers in our family. We didn't know anything about engineering, so to speak. But my dad had had um, gone to trade school after the war, you know, with the GI Bill. You know, they weren't in the South. They didn't send a lot of blacks to college. They would divert them to trade school. So my daddy had, had taken um, radio and, and television and, and auto mechanics in trade school. Now, he never had, he could never have his own business or anything, but he used to fix things for us and also for other people. And most of the time he didn't charge them, you know, they maybe would give a chicken, um, a bushel of fruit or something like that. And so, and my brothers used to get into his tools, which was kind of like a no-no, but they insisted on doing that. That was always interesting. But we, we we looked in the dictionary and saw those different professions. You know, for the longest, I wanted to be a medical technologist. I don't know why. It sounded different. And I didn't know anybody that was a medical technologist. So I said, I can do that. <laughs> so tell me what you think of when you hear the saying, with all I get and get understanding. I I guess I would like to share that you listen. I mean, I listened very closely to my elders when they were speaking to me and when they were speaking to each other. I had, um, so that I tried to understand, and I always thought, and I've had this um, reinforced, one of my college teachers, Dr. Granger, as a matter of fact, Lester Granger, who was, executive director of the Urban League, came to Dillard and talked. 
And he swore, he bet me that I had been raised by my grandmother. And what did you say? No, I was raised by my mother. But I think because I, I was around people, she had a good relationship with elderly people. We talked to elderly people. We would go and visit and sit on the front porch and carry on conversation as if we were practicing for when we became adults. And so we, we, we listened and it was very important to understand. I would read the newspaper from front to back from the time I was like maybe fourth grade. I knew what was going on when they had the conventions. And I thought they were fascinating. Talk about the political convention. The political convention, yes. And that was before you went to Dillard University? That was before I went to Dillard University. This was, I was, you know, 1956. Wow. So you obviously were influenced by some folks. You mentioned Dr. Granger. Were there others that helped to influence you in your way of thinking? And why might that oh, be? Oh, my parents above all. Okay. Okay. You know, that um, thing that your uh, parents influenced you. My parents, um, my mother especially, my mother was very, was very religious, but it wasn't the kind of religion that she used on browdy people with. She, she just had a very light hand on which she, on the expectation. You had to be honest and truthful and, but she just didn't try to say no dancing and no playing cards or anything like that. We could do that. So she was religious. My father was less so, but my father would take us to church and drop us off on a Sunday evening. But he would then go and spend the evening with an uncle who was a double amputee from diabetes. So he would go with him and they would listen to the game and they would talk. Uh, he had been, this uncle had been a World War One vet. My dad was in, fought in World War Two. And, and so, and he was, he always did stuff for people. He didn't talk about it. He was, he was quiet. One of his teachers, Mrs. Kelsaw, that taught him, uh, when he was in elementary school, he used to, he stayed in touch with her. And, um, this was kind of before the days when everybody had a telephone. Different, the word would go out, you know, like, uh, Sherman, that's my dad's name. Mrs. Kelsaw is looking for you. Because that meant she had some something for him to do, some some errand she wanted him to run, or something like that. And so he, he did a lot of that. And they were folks that obviously influenced you, had an impact. Uh, do you did, did you, all of your siblings feel similarly about that idea of learning and what they were able to offer? Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I've collected um, thoughts from my siblings on their upbringing because I'm, I'm trying to put together a memoir, especially for my nieces and nephews. And I, I was shocked because the, the things that they brought up in terms of how they remembered my mother and father, was very similar to my experience. One of my brothers, let's see, 
maybe the fifth month. So by this time, I wasn't in college, but he, what he remembered was he was going to be in a place, and it required him to have a suit, and he didn't have a suit. And so he had told the teacher that he couldn't be in the play. Well, my mother knew about this, and she said, why did you do that? And she got her sister and somebody else, and the three of them got the suit. And he was going to be in that play. And he remembered that. That they cared enough to want to make sure they had that opportunity. Exactly. That she just didn't say, oh, well, you can't do this. And that was the thing. You always thought, oh, we were always the ones raising our hands when the teachers, when we had fundraisers, and they wanted uh, people to make popcorn balls to sell and cookies and that kind of thing. We were raising our hands saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to make popcorn balls. <laughs> and so that was nine of you all doing the same thing, right? Well, you know, the youngest one was born when I was in college. Okay. But there were a lot. And my mother said, what? I'm not rich. What are you guys doing? <laughs> but there were very few times that she turned it, you know, turned it down. We would say, well, we could do this. And she would make cookies. And, and, um, and she had, and this is the other thing she would do. At the beginning of the year, she would call everybody's teachers and introduce herself and say, you know, if you have any problems, let me know. And she said, um, I'm not going to be able, I'm, you know, I have a whole, a bunch of children. I'm not going to be able to make the all the PTA meetings and that kind of thing, but I want you to know that I am interested and I will be in touch with you. And then somewhere during the year, she would send them, she made very difficult candy. She would send the teachers to go here. So she created sort of like peanut brittle, except for pine. Yeah, it was like praline. Okay, like, kind of like praline. Mm -hmm. Okay, but in cluster. But what she did, uh, I mean, I know that now. I didn't know that then. I realize it now. She was creating an atmosphere for us because oftentimes when kids are from large families, the expectations aren't necessarily that high. We, my mother was so particular about our clothes. We went starch, iron, the boys, jeans, iron, because she didn't want anybody to think that just because we were from a large family, that we weren't being taken care of. Hmm. Wow. So, you mentioned some things earlier that got me thinking, uh, I know that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was very much uh, in people's minds. Uh, you would, at that point, I guess, uh, uh, either was finished at Dillard or around then, I guess, uh, February of 68, he did a uh, speech where he talked about, uh, it's actually, I guess, a couple months before he died, where he talked about wanting to be a drum major for justice. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Wanted to be a drum major for peace and a drum major for righteousness. And thinking about social justice now, um, how would you describe yourself? 
I guess what I find myself doing now, trying to share experience of what it means to be black in America to people who don't necessarily know that. But I've often found myself being one of few or the only uh, black person. And and so I've always been conscious of the fact, you know, they used to say, um, well, you're representing your race. And that has been the hardest thing for me to put aside. So I feel sharing the experience of being black is something that somehow has fallen to me and that I, I do. And as an example for others, or because what, what's the motivator for you? I want a better world, and I just don't think people know enough about uh, our history hasn't been included that that we belong here as we much. as African Americans. We as African Americans, we've been here forever. We were present at the creation. And we have not been included in the way we needed to be included. So what would you say would be the most important social justice issue today? Restoring the black community from the ravages of the war on drugs. I just think our families were sometimes decimated. Uh, parents were incarcerated, grandparents had to raise children, and it's not that grandparents can't, but we we lost some of what I had. Like, I know what it means to come from families that are intact from generation to generation, how much it means, how much people have to give, and when they, you know, like, just send people off, mothers and fathers and, and kids then grow up with the, the grandparents, but you know, the cliche, it takes a village. It really it takes a village. And that was kind of shattered when all these people, you know, went to jail, were incarcerated, long sentences, and, um, you know, I think that, and I, I, in a sense, I think poverty is a social justice issue also. What might you offer in terms of words of wisdom for for others? I I guess the words of wisdom I would have is, um, you know, I, I I would wish for people to have a spiritual sense because I know even my some of my um, nieces and nephews, good kids, but they're just not. Into the spiritual part, <laughs> and so ever so often I, I remind them. I, I think it's it's important. I came a mighty long way with a a, a lot of help and and believing, you know, the meaning of the Lord. Absolutely. That's it. What might you want to share as what you think would be the most important things for the next generation? I just think it's important to know who we are as Americans. I don't know, I don't like to think of it, but it's almost 
like black people have had to have our foot in both worlds. And that may be the case going forward. It might be easy to think we don't have to think about these things. But I think for a long time to come, we, we are going to have to think about it. We have seen how easily it is for those underlying issues having to do with race, how easily they surface in times of uncertainty. And we've got to prepare ourselves for the long haul, which means we just can't think about ourselves. We just can't think, I've made it. But we have to think about helping other people make it, because in the end, we're only going to make it as far as some other folks are able to make it. And to me, that goes for whether you're black or white. We're not going any place if we're not going together. Excellent point. Might there be anything else that you might want to share that we haven't discussed that you think would be important for people to understand in these profiles in aging? Aging. <laughs> mm. Well, I, sometimes I feel extremely lucky um, that I grew up where I did and in the time that I did and that it prepared me uh, it prepared me to, I guess, take on aging. Because, you know, I'm old. In my, in my mind, I'm not as old as I am. It comes from the opportunity to live a good life. For being lucky. Um, for not being burdened down. And my old age, you know, I'm not rich, I'm not wealthy, I'm not anything, but I don't have to worry right now. And I think that should be, nobody should have to worry when they get old. And so I don't, I'm not thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable because I, I can't be comfortable when so many people are not comfortable. I know we can help, you know, donating and that kind of thing, but there are structural changes that have to take place in our society to deal with those issues. And how can can I be a voice for those for those kinds of changes? Would would you say that being older now is any more difficult than it was uh years ago? I think about older people that I knew when I grew up. And I know, I'm 77 now, the people I knew who were 77 were so worn down by age, when I was a child. They had worked hard. They had been mistreated in many ways. They, um, had not been able to 
fulfill themselves. They've been relegated to certain positions by Jim Crow. We know that the stress. You see, we would, they put, in many ways protected us from some of that stress, but they took it on. And that aged them. I think people that have had a little bit more financial support, you know, it's clear you're able to live a different kind of life. And you're able to enter into your autumn years from a different point of view. What would you say for the profession of social work, you as a retired social worker? Oh, Dr. Cosby, I tell you. Social work is a profession, I think, that requires all of you. Uh, critical thinking skills are very important. Being able to make a really good assessments, but knowing enough about life and history to make those assessments within the context of the larger society and not just focusing on the individual. I think it's important. Uh, I always like the part of social work, the person in the environment. That's wonderful. Well, as I anticipated, Dr. Annie Brown, you've provided a wealth of information for me and for our listeners, and so I'm very grateful to you for being able to speak to me today. I want to say that uh, on behalf of Howard University School of Social Work and the Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center, um, we thank you, and uh, we know that we stand on your shoulders from the hard work that you were able to do over a lot of years at the School of Social Work and for the profession. So, thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Work's Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology. G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III, professor of music at Howard University. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Thank you for listening.